0: Amen. Thank you, Nick. Good morning, City Light. Yeah, it is a good morning. I'm excited to dig into God's Word with you. Um, This last week, I had a fun moment. I was talking with my son, Jonah, who told me he was super excited. He has read every one of the Diary of a Wimpy Kid books. He's eight years old. Uh, There are 15 books in the series. That's a lot of books for an eight-year-old, and I was getting excited with him. Man, that's an accomplishment. Good job. So uh, let's look up online. Let's see all these books that you've read, and so we pull up on Google the Diary of a Wimpy Kid series, and guess what we found straight away? Number sixteen just came out, (laughs) so he hasn't read them all anymore. He's got another one to read. Uh, There are a lot of books in uh, that come out in multi-volume sets like that, right? We see, uh, like I think of the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lord of the Rings. There's like the Hunger Games, the Iliad, and the Odyssey. You think even of the Bible? It's a collection of sixty-six. Books that are divided into two volumes that we call the Old and New Testaments. There are just some stories in life that are too big to be contained in one volume. You are tracking with me? Well, I think in Psalm 19, David shows us this is how he sees God's story. The glory of God just can't be contained in one Book. And so David sees uh, God's glory in two volumes, the world and the word, nature and scripture, creation and composition. I was having fun with that. Uh, you get the idea. A great preacher, Charles Spurgeon, he once wrote this. He said, in his earliest days, the psalmist, while keeping his father's flock, had devoted himself to the study of God's two great books Nature and Scripture, he was magnifying the excellency of the author as seen in both. In other words, Psalm 19 is a reflection of David about how he sees God's glory in two volumes in nature. And scripture in the world and the word. And so let me show it to you. In verse 1, David starts a six-verse celebration of God's glory in the world. He he writes, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Six verses of God's glory in the world. And then he shifts in verse 7 to a five-verse celebration of God's glory in His Word. It starts, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. And David is saying that these two volumes, the world and the Word, are telling the same story. God is glorious, and powerful, and loving, and good. Psalm 19, it's like a reflection of a shepherd boy who was out in the fields watching his sheep graze on the grass under the sun, and he just saw God's glory all around him. It's the reflection of that shepherd boy who grew up to be king, and he sat and ruled over God's people, and he read God's law And saw God's glory all throughout it, dripping from every page and every word. And that brings us through most of Psalm 19. And then at the very end, the part that Nick read for us, it takes this little bit of a turn and David gets personal. We see this personal longing in David that the glory of God that he sees in the world and that he reads in the word would also take up residence in him. He just longs for his life to be a continuation of the series of volumes that declare the glory of God. Oh, he wants God's glory in himself. And so we're going to look at the psalm in those three volumes, the glory of God in the world, the glory of God in the word, and the glory of God in me. That's where we're going. We'll let's start with number one, the glory of God in the world. The Bible's got all kinds of stories and examples of God's glory on display in the world, in creation. So let me just remind you of a few. One is way back in Genesis, God told a man named Abram to leave his home and go to a land that God would show him. And Abram had to follow by faith. And God told Abram there would be a great reward for his faith, in following, but Abram just couldn't quite comprehend that because in those days for a great reward to be received, it had to be a reward that would last generation after generation after generation. It'd be a reward that could be passed on and there was a problem. Abram didn't have any kids and so he just couldn't compute, God, how could you give me a great reward if I have no one to pass it on to? And so God did something to assure Abram of the promise that he had just made. The Bible says, And God brought Abram outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you can number them. And then God said to Abram, So shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. So God said, You will get a great reward. Go outside, look up at the stars, and see if you can count them. Now, I did a little Google search. Uh, on the best stargazing nights, you can see somewhere between 3,500 and 4,500 stars. And so I don't know what kind of guy Abram was. If he just walked out and he just thought, that's a lot of stars. I can't number them. I'm not even going to try. Or if he's more like my wife and it's like, I need to try to number these. One two, three, 500, 501. Did I already count that one? I got to start over. One, two, you know, like 35 to 4,500 stars in the sky. And Abram didn't know it then, but we know it now. There are a whole lot more stars out there than our eyes can see. In fact, in just our galaxy, the Milky Way, (laughs) you all knew it was the Milky Way. That was redundant. In the Milky Way, there are uh, something like 100,000 million stars in just our galaxy. And the number of galaxies in the universe, there's this wide range, uh, what people think there might be, somewhere between two hundred billion and two trillion. So God says, go outside, try to number the stars, even if he would have got to 4,500, the ones that he could see, God's promise far outpaced what he could take in. the, The heavens declared the vastness, the magnificence of God's promise to his people. Abraham could hardly take it in. The heavens declare the glory of God. And that's just one story. We could go on and on. Like Moses, when he led his people out of slavery in Egypt back to that promised land that Abram had gone to, God led his people by a pillar of cloud in the day. So they're wandering through the desert, and God leads them by this great cloud in the sky that would shield them from the blistering desert sun. And then at night, he led them by a pillar of fire That would warm them, you may not know this, in the desert, it can get almost to freezing, like below 40 degrees in Egypt, in the desert. And so as they wandered the desert, God led them by a pillar of fire in the sky that would warm them on the cold nights. The glory of God is declared in the heavens. We could go on to Joshua as he took the promised land for God's people. He was in a battle and one day the sun stopped in the sky to extend the time that he could have victory and hailstones rained from heaven on God's enemies. The glory of God declared in the heavens. We could go on. There was a prophet named Elijah um, who had prophesied God's word and he was on the run for his life because the king didn't like it. And he hid in the wilderness and birds literally flew in from the sky bringing him food to sustain him. The glory of God declared in the heavens. Later on, there were wise men in the east who studied the stars and somehow in them saw evidence that God's promised king had just been born. And so these wise men from the east followed the star and and they found the place where it stopped and it was right above Jesus, God's promised king. They found him and they worshipped him. The heavens Declare the glory of God. And that's what David saw as he uh, 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 studied the, the volume of God's glory as he sat in the fields watching his sheep. This is what Psalm 19 says. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. And so we might wonder, how does creation declare the glory of God? How do the heavens declare the glory of God? In this psalm, I think we can pick out maybe three ways. This is just Eric's observations, okay? The heavens declare the glory of God globally, joyfully, purposefully. All right, there's my three words, globally, joyfully, purposefully. David wrote day after day, night after night, all day, all night, every day, every night, to all people who live under the sun and the stars, the heavens declare the glory of God. It is a global phenomenon. If you live on the globe, you have experienced a sunrise and a sunset to declare the glory of God. It happens for all people in creation, globally. How does the the heavens declare the glory of God? Uh, David continues in them, the heavens, God has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. It's rising uh, is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. So here's what David sees. He's out in the field. Let's go with him. We're in the field. It's almost dawn. He's been watching his sheep all night. And all of a sudden, he sees on the horizon the sun beginning to come up. And David says, as he watches the sunrise, it's like a groom coming out of his chamber. Now, commentators don't agree on exactly what David meant by this. It's one of two things. Either it's a groom who steps out of his home on his wedding day dressed up and ready to go get his bride it's a joyful thing he either means that or it's a groom stepping out of his chamber after the wedding night either way this is a joyful day okay Uh, pg that's enough said the sun rises joyfully right and then he says like a strong man set out to run a race the olympics are coming and uh usain bolt the sprinter from jamaica He just said he trained four years to run nine seconds. And we're people who get upset if we start something and don't see results in days, right? He said he trained four years to run nine seconds. And David said, as he watched the sun rise, it was like a strong man ready for the race. From start to finish, running his hardest. He was doing what he was meant to do, what he trained to do, what he was told to do. It was a purposeful race. The heavens declare the glory of God. Globally, joyfully, purposefully. I wonder if you've ever experienced you ever looked at the sky and seen the glory of God? I was thinking about this, and I remember uh, riding um, in my grandpa's farm truck on the old gravel roads that grid the farms outside Clorinda, just south of here. We'd ride in his truck, and uh, he would almost never look at the road. You know, any old farmers like that? Like, they just never look at the road. What are they looking at? They're looking at the fields all the time. He farmed his whole life, and he never lost the amazement of what God did in that land, in those fields. He would plant those tiny little seeds, and then he'd leave them there, and he would just watch the sky. And from the sky, he would see water fall down, and the rain would water his seeds. And he would watch the sky, and he would see the sun break through the clouds, and those sunbeams shine down and bake his seeds in the ground. And as the water fell and the sun shone, what happened? Life. My grandpa would drive through those gravel roads and look up at the sky and sit amazed that God gives life. It's the glory of God declared in the heavens. Maybe for you, it's not farm ground, maybe it's something like the mountains. When I was in college, I was flipping through National Geographic magazine, and I saw an ad for Nature Valley Granola Bars. And just a couple days later, John Piper, who was one of my favorite pastors back then, um, he used that very ad as a sermon illustration. So I've never forgot it, and I'm stealing it today, okay? Um, This ad was a picture of a mountaintop. And so on one edge, you could kind of see this huge mountain, And these two little people perched on top of it, and the rest of the page was sky, except for a little bit of scenery, like off in the horizon. So huge mountain, lots of sky, little bit of scenery, and these two tiny little people perched up on top of the mountain. And that ad said, you've never felt more alive. You've never felt more insignificant. What a juxtaposition. Never felt more alive. Never felt more insignificant. I don't know if you've ever climbed a mountain. I only have once. I don't plan on doing it again. Okay? (laughs) Um, I did once. When you get to a mountain, you look at it and it looks huge you can't see around it you can't see over it you can't see through it and you think i gotta get up that thing it's huge it dominates the world as you peer up it and then you climb the mountain and when you get to the top you know what happens it doesn't seem very big anymore why because when you get to the top of a mountain you can turn all the way around and the sky is unhindered in your view It stretches forever in every direction. And the mountain that once seemed so big is dwarfed by the sky. And the sky seems so massive and so all-encompassing that it dwarfs you. It like engulfs you and makes you feel tiny. You ever stood next to an ocean or under a sky and you just feel small? There's something about that that makes you feel kind of alive. It's like almost counter-human. It's certainly counter-cultural. We, we usually think, man, the more significant we feel, the more alive we feel. Like if I have more money, more power, more influence, more lights, more cars, whatever, then I'll feel more alive. This is not how it works. We feel most alive. When we behold the significance of God, the one who is greater than us, the one whose glory the heavens declare day after day and night after night, David says the heavens declare the glory of God. It is one great volume that tells God's story. It's number one, point number one, all right? Point number two, um, the... Uh, God's glory, the second volume of God's glory is the Word, Scripture, the Bible. Uh, David, the shepherd boy, he grew up to become king. And in David's days, the king was not a figurehead like the Queen of England is now. The king had a purpose, a role. Look at what the Bible says about King David's role. This is from 2 Samuel uh, chapter 8. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So David reigned over all Israel. And here it is. And David administered justice and equity to all his people. David administered justice and equity. So what we see here is that the king, at least in part, had a role as a judge. And King David, the judge had to have a standard by which he would determine justice and equity. What was David's standard? It was God's law. And he celebrated. Look at what David wrote. The law of the Lord is perfect. David is saying God's law is good for every part of you your heart, your soul, your mind, your eyes. It is good for all of you. And I just think, David, I, 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 got, a, I got a little trouble tracking with you here. I don't know anyone else that celebrates living under somebody else's rules and precepts and laws. You know what I mean? Like, that just seems weird. Who's going to celebrate that somebody else is in charge telling me what to do? That's kind of wacky. Why would David do that? Well, I don't, I don't think maybe it's quite as far-fetched or unrelatable as it might seem on first read. Like, it wasn't that long ago I shared that I willingly submitted myself to the rules of the Whole30 food plan. And uh, I... I did that because I thought there would be a benefit or a reward on the other side. Truth be told, I made it 24 days, and I'm not sure it was worth it. (laughs) But I thought it would be, and so I submitted to the rules. You think of people who do like CrossFit or Peloton or Spin Class or Jazzercise or whatever people do these days. They willingly submit themselves to some trainer's commands. Don't stop. Go harder. Get your booty down on those push-ups. Whatever it is, right? They willingly submit themselves to some trainer's shouting commands. Why would they do that? Because they see a reward on the other side. And friends, that's what David saw when he read God's law. There is great reward in it. Look at what he says, more to be desired are God's laws than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. David says God's law is better than a truckload of gold and an all-you-can-eat dessert buffet. This is good stuff. And he tells us there are two reasons why. Why is God's law that good? Because it warns and it rewards. What makes God's law so good? It warns and it rewards. Let me give you some examples. Uh, One, God says, honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. That's in the Ten Commandments, God's laws. Honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. It warns and it rewards. It warns by saying, uh, hey, don't find your identity in your work. Don't think that if you work hard all the time, you can become who you were meant to be. Don't think that by your work, you can secure what your heart most longs for. You can never work yourself into that kind of thing. Remember the Sabbath, honor it and keep it holy. It's a warning against working ourselves to death. And there's a reward to it. saying, don't find your identity in your work because God gives you your identity. Don't think that you can work your way into God's favor or who you were meant to be because God is the one who gives his favor freely through his son, Jesus. You can't get there on your own Don't find your identity in that. Find your identity in God. And guess what happens when you find your identity in God, your God-given identity? You, like, are shaped into his image. And you know what God did? He took a day off. The seventh day after he created, he rested, and he tells his people as a command and a reward of following the command, you too get a day off. That's a blessing for his people. There's a warning and a reward. Let me give you one more. Jesus himself, when he walked this earth, said, but love your enemies. There's the command. I'll read a little bit more. Love your enemies and do good and land expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. That's us. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. So Jesus, he commands his people to love their enemies. It's a warning with a reward. The warning is, hey, you need to love your enemies and not fall into the trap that they are caught in. We we don't exchange hurt for hurt. We don't exchange hate for hate. When you are hurt, When you are hated, when you are sinned against, how do you respond? You love in return. There's a cycle that broken, sinful people like us get caught in, hurt for hurt, hate for hate. Jesus says he intends to stop that cycle. We love our enemies. There's a warning, don't get caught in that vicious cycle and it comes with a reward. Did you catch it? It says, when you do that, when you love your enemies, you're imaging what God does for us. When you give mercy and forgiveness and love to your enemies, you receive that same mercy from God. So when you sin against him, he doesn't count you as his enemy and return hurt for hurt and hate for hate. He forgives us. And gives mercy to us. There is a warning and a reward when Jesus says, love your enemies. And so the law of God is perfect and good. It's sweeter than honey and more valuable than gold because it warns and it's reward and it rewards. The glory of God is declared in his word. And so we see these two volumes the world. And the word declared the glory of God, and then David takes this shift. It's like he stops looking around himself and starts looking within himself, and he sees, oh, there's so much of God's glory around me and in his word. You almost hear him say, I want that glory in me. I want to know it and experience it. I want my life to be the next volume in the set, that my life might declare the same glory that I see in the world and the Word. You can hear it longing for it. Listen to David's words. He says, Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. So friends, this is where the psalm gets practical. This is where after we've seen God's glory, we actually get something to take home. This is how uh, this impacts my life. This is what I do with the rest of the psalm. Uh, What's it going to take for David to have God's glory in him? How is that going to work? Well, he makes the connection with one word, blameless. He says, God, if you declare me innocent from hidden sins and keep me back from presumptuous sins, then I shall be blameless. Now, that's not the first time that David has used that word in this psalm. To find the first time he used it, we gotta go back to verse seven when he's talking about God's law. David wrote, The law of the Lord is perfect. Now, in English, we don't catch the connection. But in Hebrew, that word perfect comes from the same root word that David used when he says, then I shall be blameless. So that could be translated, the law of the Lord is blameless. So here's what David is thinking. How do I get God's glory in me? How do I get the blameless perfection of God's law in me? I must be blameless too. I must deal with whatever it is that prevents me from being blameless. And what is that? It's only one thing. Sin. David knows that to have God's glory in him for his life, to continue to declare God's glory like the world and the word, he must be blameless like God's law is blameless. That's the connection. And so, he deals with his sin. And he does that in two ways. First, he asks God to declare him innocent from hidden faults. This is the sin that he can't see in himself. He's talking about sin that hides in our blind spots. It's like um, when you smile at a friend and you got something nasty in your teeth, you know? You can't see it, but they sure can see it cringe a little bit it's the it's the sin in your blind spots that you can't see and David asked God to forgive him of that I think we have that kind of sin too for example a pastor friend of mine um, he shares a story about how his life changed just after he got saved in college Um, He he gave his life to Jesus, and his life starts to change. He can feel the Spirit working in him, and he wanted that. He just had no idea what it looked like to live a life pleasing to God, but he was trying his best. And so he remembers sitting down in his dorm room one day to make some commitments to God, to just outline some changes that he wanted to see in his life. And so his list sounded something like this. God, I'm going to read my Bible every day, and I'm going to pray before every meal. And God, by your grace, for the rest of the semester, I'm only going to make out with Christian girls. (laughs) He's trying his best to live a life honoring Jesus. He just has no idea what it looks like, right? He's still got blind spots, sin that hides, that he doesn't even know is there. For him, that blind spot was lust. For us, we have them too. Maybe it's the same. Maybe it's not. Maybe for us, it's pride or anger or divisiveness. Friends, we have hidden faults, sin that hides in our blind spots. And David is just doing this humble recognition that he can't see everything in himself that opposes God's glory. He says, God, you can see it all. Forgive me for my hidden sins. Friends, I think this is a pretty incredible picture of God's grace. David knew he was breaking the very laws of God that he had just praised with such high praise. And he knew that as he looked at those laws, he was guilty, not innocent. He was convicted, not blameless. And yet David had this great hope that the God that he had rejected would not reject him anymore. In God's mercy, he would forgive. So hang on to that, okay? Because we're going to come back to it. First thing that David did to deal with his sin was ask for forgiveness for his hidden sins. The second one that he addresses is presumptuous sin. Now, presumptuous comes from the same word as to presume, right? It's the times that David knowingly sinned because he presumed that he knew better than God. David knew God's law. He knew right from wrong, but there were still times that he deliberately chose to reject God's instruction. That is presumptuous sin. It's the sin in ourselves that we see clearly and still choose to walk down that path. In our minds, it might sound something like this. I can watch that dirty show. It's not really that bad because it doesn't hurt anyone. We can move in together. It'll be okay because someday we'll get married. I can tell that lie, and it's not that big of a deal because nobody will ever know. I can spread that gossip. It's not that big of a deal. I'm not even sure it's gossip because I'm only telling the people who actually need to know. I can take out my anger on my family. It's going to be okay because they understand what I'm going through. I don't know what it sounds like for you. But presumptuous sin happens when you know you're walking a path you shouldn't walk, and you take that next step anyway. And for this one, David doesn't ask for forgiveness. It's fascinating to me. He doesn't ask God to forgive him of that. Instead, he asks God to keep him back so that his presumptuous sin doesn't have dominion over him. You almost hear the desperation in his voice. God, God. Keep me back. I need your power to hold me back from the sin that sucks me in. God, I do not want to live in sin's domain so that it has dominion over me. I want to live in your domain where you have dominion over me. For that to happen, God, I need your hand to keep me back from my sin. Otherwise, I know myself I will get sucked in. David's begging God, keep me back from presumptuous sin. And friends, I just think it's a right response to sin. David does two things. He says, God, forgive me for all my hidden sins, the ways that I offend you and don't even know it, and keep me back from presumptuous sins that I know I will chase after unless you change my heart. And David goes on to say, God, if you answer these prayers, then I'll be blameless. There's our word. Then the glory that I see in the world and the word, that'll be in me. I'll be blameless. So let's be super clear here. I just want to track a thought line together. How is David blameless? He's blameless when God declares him innocent from hidden sins and keeps him back from presumptuous sins. That's how he's blameless. So who accomplished the blamelessness In David. God did. And David knew it. And he was so grateful. He was so dependent. He cries out to God in this one final summary of all the rest of Psalm 19. The last verse is David's final plea. He says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. It's this great summary. He says, God, let the words of my mouth echo the same glory that all creation has declared day after day, night after night for all of time. Let my words be those words. And God, let what I meditate on, what the place my heart dwells, be the only place that brings joy to the heart. Uh, the, Psalm 19 said, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. He's saying, let the meditation of my heart be the thing that brings me joy. Let your word dwell in me. Would my life declare the same glory that your word declares Oh, Lord, my rock, the only solid place I can stand and not get sucked into the darkness of sin in the world. And my redeemer, the one who forgives even a wandering sinner like me. Oh, Lord, let the, medita- uh, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O oh, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And I'll just close today saying this. Friends, we have a great blessing today. Because we know what David hoped for so much more clearly than David did. We know God's forgiveness and keeping in a way David could only long for. See, God sent his son Jesus to accomplish everything David knew he needed to deal with his sin and be blameless. The Bible says, for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. How do we become the righteousness of God? How do we become blameless before God? How does the glory of God take up residence in us? It's through Jesus, the sinless one that God sent for us. Jesus is the one who knew no sin because he never sinned. Jesus came to do this great exchange. He took our guilt and gave us his innocence. He took our blame to give us his blamelessness. He took our sin to the cross to keep it from us and keep us from it forever. He took the death sentence for our sin so that we can be declared innocent for eternity. Jesus is the rock that keeps us and the redeemer that forgives us because of Jesus Christ. The glory of God that's declared by the world, the glory of God that's declared in the Word can also be the glory of God that's declared in our lives. Amen? That's good news. Would you guys pray with me? Great and awesome God, I thank you for Psalm 19. Thank you that David uh, was not just an academic and a theologian, but he was a practitioner. That as a shepherd, he could look around at creation and see you. Oh, God, would you open our eyes that we can see you in your creation too? That we would read that volume of your glory and let it sink into our hearts. God, would the sunset tonight strike us differently because we see you in it. God, we thank you for your word. As we've had psalms on repeat in our minds and our hearts this summer, God, I thank you that your word declares your glory. God, would you open our minds to to understand it, to comprehend the great widths and depths and lengths and breadths of your glory in your word. But guys, I've prepared for this morning, what hit me hardest was the idea of presumptuous sin, that for our lives to declare God's glory, we must do business with presumptuous sin. And so God, this morning, Would you deal with that in us? And friends, if you're here today and you're feeling conviction, you know what, even if you're not feeling conviction, would you just do something with me? Would you confess to God that there is presumptuous sin in your life? Think of that. Where is it? Where's the last time you just knew you were taking the wrong step and you took it in? Confess that to God. And as you do, pray the prayer that David prayed. God, would you keep me back from presumptuous sin? God, would you hold me back from all of those places I would run away from you? God, would you reveal all those things in the world that sparkle are fool's gold. The real treasure is in you. Would you ask God to keep you back. Oh God, would you make us a people who are blameless because you forgive us of all the hidden sins that we can't see. And your hand holds us back from all the sins that we can see. Jesus, you came to seek and save the lost, to forgive sinners. Your hand is not too short to save anyone. No matter how far we've fallen, no matter how dark of a pit we feel like we're living in right now, your hand is not too short to save so Jesus, would you enter in right here with us now? Would you be the rock that we stand on today in all of our days? And Jesus, would you be the redeemer where we run to for forgiveness, for grace, for mercy, for love, for acceptance, for friendship, today and forever. Jesus, you are worthy of all that glory. We see it in your world. We see it in your word. God, would you make our lives declare the same thing?